Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to the winner of the 2022 Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for Comic Fiction, celebrated American writer Percival Everett. He's the author of over 20 novels, as well as several poetry and short story collections. In 2015, he was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Fiction, and in 2021, he was the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for his novel Telephone. He currently holds the position of Distinguished Professor of English at the University of Southern California. His winning novel, The Trees, which was also shortlisted for the 2022 Booker Prize, is a dark satire about America's history of lynching and racism. Percival Everett, welcome to Meet the Writers. Well, thank you for having me. Percy, I'm, I'm really intrigued about your background. I know that you grew up in the South of America, but I understand that horses and mules are an integral part of who you are. And I'd love to know more about that. Well, they, they were for about um, 12 or 13 years of my life. I lived on a small farm outside Los Angeles where I worked with uh, mules and horses. And what did you do with them? Were you training them? Yes. Mostly I work with problem animals. And is there, a, myself. <laughs> is, there a, is there a connection that you find between person and, and animal? Is there a way that you can, how do you convince a, a mule that doesn't want to do something to do it? Well, you can't force them. That's certainly true. Um, it's developing trust. It's knowing that no matter how difficult the animal is, it's not trying to deceive you. It's just like any of us wants to do what he wants to do. And, and it's, a, it's a gift when, they, when an animal will do what you want it to do. They're letting us have our way. Mm. And that seems to, I mean, the natural world seems to have a, a, a quite a big place in, in your life. Uh, you're also, or at least have been, I believe, an ardent fisherman. I like to be more ardent than I am. But uh, yes, I, I, I love being outside. And is that a thinking time for you? Is that what's attractive about it? It is. From my history, it's certainly not about catching fish. It's uh, a time for not only contemplation, but for distraction. I work best when when I can empty my head and, and focus on something else. Mm. And I know another passion of yours is uh, fixing stringed instruments, particularly guitars. Yes. Tell me about that. Where does that come from? I play guitar, and I love the instrument. And during um, COVID, I, I started... You know, YouTube, I didn't, I don't know much about the internet, but I discovered, um, as everyone else had already discovered, that you can learn to do anything on YouTube. Mm. So I, I essentially learned to take apart and put guitars back together, watching a, an old man in Arkansas. <laughs> and, and at least early on, I could find broken instruments for, for just a few dollars and then have a, a nice playable guitar. And of course, music, it seems, is something that was integral to this wonderful book, The Trees, because you've said in interviews before that actually a Lyle Lovett song was something that kind of sparked at the very beginning of your journey on this book. Yes, it did. It's a, a, a cover of his, of a traditional song called Ain't No More Cane. And his version is, was, I found it quite moving. I, I've always liked his voice. But just the the rhythm of it, as I was walking with a friend one day, um, I just listened to it and I turned to him and said, I think I have my new novel. So I, I do credit, love it for connecting a, a couple of wires for me. 
Mm. And does it generally appear in your head fully formed? Do you know what you're going to write roughly from start to finish? Is there a kind of fully formed map, if you like, that comes to you in that moment of inspiration? I'd like to think there is, but there really isn't. I I imagine, uh, and map is a good word. I'm glad you used that. I, I never work with an outline. I never see the entire work, but I, but I do have what I call a map. And as anyone who's ever done any exploring knows, uh, a map is is merely excuse to get lost, and so it gives me permission to to venture out. Now, shockingly, I have to explain to an international audience who Emmett Till was and why he's important. And it's shocking because, of course, we should all know this. He lived in Chicago. He was visiting relatives in Mississippi, in Money, Mississippi, where he had a fateful encounter with the then 20-year-old Caroline Bryant in the summer of 1955. Now, there were all sorts of allegations that perhaps he whistled at her. And four days later, uh, Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam took him from his bed in the middle of the night. They ordered him into the back of a pickup and they beat him before shooting him in the head and tossing his body into the Tallahatchie River. And this shocking incident is at the core of the book. The book is described as a comedy and I wonder why you chose to write it in this way that satirizes this appalling incident. Well, though that incident is is, is certainly at the, at the core of the novel, it's that's not the novel. It's not the Emmett Till story. And, and I might insert here that shocking though it may be that you have to introduce that to a, a British audience. It's even more shocking that one has to introduce this, this information to an American audience. Humor and irony are effective tools in, in having someone see not only themselves, but the world in which they, they live. Once you have someone laughing about anything, you can do other things to them. I was so surprised. I mean, you, you kind of read about what the subject matter is going to be, then see it's up for, for a comic fiction award. And I thought, well, that that's not going to work. <laughs> and then I read the book and there is a laugh out line on every page. Well, that, that, I suppose that's, that's nice. Here I, I never thought of the book as comic at all. And though it's always nice to win an award, I was surprised by this one. Um, it's a it's a tough book. It's a, it's a scary book. I'm and again, uh, irony is, is, is a uh, essential feature to all of my work, but it's also an essential feature to any people trying to get through a period of oppression. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's, it's used so brilliantly in this way. I mean, from the very opening pages, Money, Mississippi, which, of course, I thought was a, a made up place. But in fact, that is exactly a real place. And it is where Emmett Till was murdered. Yes. I love the way, though, that you, you use that, that word of the place that, you know, small change is, is one part of the, the place and all the different names of the people. Now, names are incredibly important to this book, firstly, in, in a comedic way. So you've got some amazing names that, that some of the people in the book are called. I, I particularly like uh, Red Jetty, for instance. Well, yes, and names have always been fascinating to me, but the naming is, is essentially um, power. Even in places, people who discover places get to name them. Mm. And naming children, naming places is, is a way to be proprietary ab about them in, in, in some regard. You're also setting, at least in the case of children, you're setting them on a course. Names do a lot of work. They, they create expectations. They create direction sometimes. 
which is how naming comes into play in, in many different cultures, especially those where people have come into a, a world where language, their, their native languages have been taken away from them. Naming is a way to claim language, which is why you have a lot of very inventive names in, in African-American uh, communities. And of course, a lot of people lost their names when they arrived in America for the first Certainly. time. Yes. And that's no small thing. You're losing not only your culture, your name, your religion. And so you're always trying to get back that kind of um, agency. Yeah. Well, so one of the, I mean, I guess that the central part of the book is the fact that you are naming people, the 7,000 people who have been lynched uh, since 1913, which was when Mama Zed was born. And she begins recording the name of every single person who lost their life in this way. And it's hugely important because these are not just unknowns. They were somebody. Yes. In fact, I, I actually performed the practice employed by the character in the novel of writing the names by hand until my hand did hurt but it was um it was it was very moving a little bit scary and sort of life-changing in that i really did feel just for a few seconds i was extending their their time yeah i forget who it is who said you you know you're, you're always remembered as long as there's somebody on this earth who's still saying your name and that i mean chapter 64 of your book which is the longest chapter it's about 10 pages and it contains every single one of those 7,000 names. And it's, I defy anybody to, to read that chapter and not feel that their worldview has altered in some way. Well, the, that all 7,000 names are there. I, I, I venture to say they all have a few hundred to become representative of all of those names. And nor did I write out all of the names. I wrote out perhaps 1,000, 1,200 names. And what was interesting about making the names is I make up stories and people for a living. And even though the names often are quite usual, I could never have made up so many. Mm. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's extremely moving, that chapter. And then we get back to the kind of the really hysterical ones, Junior Junior, whose son is just called Triple J. <laughs> Big Mama Yella, who uses her, her CB handle, even her kids use that. It's wonderfully, I mean, obviously that there's a, a huge amount about race in the book, but it's also about American class, about rednecks who call themselves Pecker Woods. Right away, I'm not being terribly fair to white people in, in, in this novel. And that's a reaction to the years of, of stereotyping that people of color have been subjected to in American culture. In fact, just the other night, I noticed in the paper that a movie was was airing an Abbott and Costello movie. They were a comedy team in the 30s and 40s called Africa Screams. And so I, I felt we, had, we were beyond those kinds of things. And in it, African people are, of course, depicted as more or less furniture, boarders, and childlike adults walking around serving white people. That's what all of us have grown up with, watching those kinds of depictions of an entire people. So I just, I, I've inverted that racist symbol. Mm. And I mean, with the, with the Black Lives Matter movement, I think perhaps one should invert that too, because what you're really saying is Black deaths matter. Exactly. As many of the, many of the names on that list that I, that I compiled are names of people in the past 20 years. I wonder how you've seen this evolve over time. You're, you're in your 60s now. I wonder 
if it became worse under Donald Trump, who is named in, in the novel? Oh, it's, to say that it's become worse, one needs only for it to continue for it to become worse. Mm. It's no worse for the people who died and, and for, for Emmett Till. It's still as bad and anyone who died in the, in the years preceding or following. But what is, is alarming in the past few years is the swagger of racists has returned at the call of, um, you know, of someone who really has no ideological uh, connection to anything except his own narcissism. But people look for currency, you know, they, they look for currency for their beliefs anywhere they can find it. And so that's the danger of stupid people being in power, I suppose. Well, that's exactly right, because I wonder if even Donald Trump could explain what Trumpism is, what the ideology behind this is. There is none. It's, it's Trump. There are no economic policies. There are no racial policies except for bending down at the, at the altar of, of a dumb man. There was a failed attempt at indicting Carolyn Bryant earlier this year. Was that something that you were following? Well, I certainly read about it. I, I didn't follow it with any um, energy. Someone apparently found a, the arrest warrant in the archives of a courthouse in Mississippi and went to try to serve it. It became somewhat comedic in a sad way in that some young people, and I, I applaud the, uh, the excitement that young people employ when they're, they're, they're seeking justice, went into a nursing home to serve this warrant, only to discover they were in the wrong nursing home. <laughs> Um, you know, Carolyn, Carolyn Bryant uh, recanted her, her accusations against young Emmett Till a few years after the events. It, it does nothing for justice. It does nothing for Emmett Till. And finally, telling the truth is hardly something to applaud. I think mm -hmm. doing what you're supposed to do is not something we should um, reward. If someone were to charge you with a crime, it would be fitting. But I, I really don't care about Carolyn Graham. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she is Granny C in the book. Now, in the in the book, she succumbs to a certain fate. In life, I believe she's still alive. She is apparently not in the nursing home that everyone suspects. <laughs> but um, yes, I, I don't know how old she would be now. Again, I don't give her much thought. And the novel does raise a question for me, and that is in thinking about her just what justice is. There's a difference between vengeance and justice. And the thing that we find beautiful, justice may not be as earth-shattering and, and, for lack of a better word, sexy as what we often think of as vengeance. Mm. Because, I mean, it's more of a slow burn in this book. It is absolute terror. It's somebody that has to face up to what they've done for all of their lives. Now, there's a supernatural element in the book. And I think that, I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about it as a kind of zombie novel, if you like. But I think it's far from that, actually. I don't think you could talk about the dead characters in your book as zombies. There's something else. Yeah. I never thought of any, I had never thought of zombies when I was making the novel, um, probably because I'm not sure I know what a zombie is. Um, <laughs> I just know that I'm not afraid of them because they can't use doorknobs, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, but what you have, though, in the book is this great rising up. You have justice finally coming. And 
I mean, it's absolutely chilling, the ending. There was one line that really struck me. So you've got, again, another wonderfully named character. Herberta Hines says she's there to investigate a violation of civil rights. And Mamarek says you have to have civil rights in order for them to be violated. I just thought that was the most incredible line. Yeah, that's not a bad line. <laughs> I often forget what I've written, and I don't remember right now when I did write that. But, uh... I mean, Mama X is, is an extraordinary character because she is this woman who's over 100 years old. She has spent her life documenting every single lynching. And she could be kind of set up. You could walk into this thinking, you know, she's she's your kind of traditional, slightly witchy, if you want to use that word. But she's not. She's um, She's old, but she's modern and she's right on it. Was she modeled on anyone in particular? No, I, I I suppose if I if I thought hard, I could come up with a a group of people from which she draws traits, but no one in particular. Now, one thing that I learned reading the book was about the large amount of uh, lynchings of Chinese people. Was that something that that you had been previously aware of? Yes, I was aware of them, and um, and not only Chinese but Italian immigrants were subjected to to some lynchings. It's, I think anyone is doing a disservice to the idea of justice when they look for justice only for themselves. Mm. And so I try to expand on the recognition of, of the crime. Now, there are two Black detectives who have ordinary names. And again, that's interesting to examine that their names are, are not jokes like the kind of very stupid white people there. And what happens is that the, the white people in, in the character have to stop themselves saying the N-word because they're so used to saying it. And suddenly in front of the detectives, they go, Black person. And I was interested in, in the idea of language actually becoming the, the villain of the piece. How, how important is it to not use words like that when you know exactly what it is that they want to say? They're saying the N-word. They're just not saying it. Well, my belief is that a, a six-letter word, that word being nigger, does not made better by having it renamed N-word. It's no, you, no one should, should call anyone that. But if someone came into my, my studio right now and, and said, hey, listen, you N-word, I would be just as offended. Mm. You don't replace that action with another name. I would rather have the people who are going to think this say it so that I know who they are. Yeah. I always appreciate a sign at the edge of a minefield that says mines. <laughs> yes. Well, an another kind of sign at the edge of a minefield perhaps is, is something much more anodyne, but equally I think as wrong, which is having black writing sections in bookshops. What would be your attitude to that? And the fact that people, I think, often ask black writers, well, you know, who are, you, who are your inspirations, meaning your black inspirations, as if you can only write within your color lane? Well, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the foundation of all, all idiocy to assume that someone is their appearance. One of the things that happens, and perhaps globally, but certainly in, in Western culture and certainly in, in American culture, is this, this sort of insidious insertion of marginal labels. 
it would be weird to a white person for someone well until the last eight years the last yeah the last eight years or so be weird to a white person for someone to come and say who is your leader but not weird to, to ask that to a, a black person that's strange a community whose whose existence and, and lives are as diverse and wide and different from each other as the so-called mainstream white America is it cannot be defined in a, in a few words or, or represented by one or one or two people. Likewise, when it comes to literature, there is not a novel, an important novel, a real novel, real art made in this culture that is not about race. If someone makes it, the pure the the, the absence of race in it is a comment about ignorance about the world in which they live. What about cultural appropriation, though? Can we be writing characters of a different race? Well, I can only use myself as an example. I, I have the, the presence of a, a lot of, of Native people in, in a few novels, but I cannot, because I do not know, I can't write as a Native person. I can write about my experiences with Native people, but I, I certainly cannot write a character. Now, because it's not my stuff. I don't know enough. I couldn't get it right. I can certainly do it if I didn't care about being true to the world. Then I can make up all sorts of, as we know, stereotypes. Some people are familiar with, with the world and can, can write about it. I don't have a problem with that as long as the intention is to create a real world that represents what they've seen. Yeah. I know that you teach, and I wonder if that innate understanding of, of how you can put yourself into somebody else's shoes or, or indeed how you tell a story is something that just comes or can it be taught? Well, we teach people, I, I teach people how to read, not just books, but how to read the world around them and how, how to um, turn that into the material of art. And I, when I say teach, it's not the same as teaching violin. I I can't tell them how to hold a bow. I can't tell teach them how how to tune um, their instruments. I can show them where they can find this in themselves. One of the things about stories is we tell them all the time. We tell each other stories constantly, which leads all of us to think that we can all do it. People say flippantly, but honestly. Oh, I have a book I want to write. Well, because they tell stories every day to each other. What I teach my students is that there is a special language that they have to uncover to tell stories artistically. And it's not the one they speak at home. It's not the, it's not the language they use to tell stories about what happened at the market. And But most of these are, are lessons that these students have already learned anyway. They've grown up reading literature and recognize this but it's sometimes things that we recognize need to be explained to us. Mm -hmm. And so reading really, I mean, to be a writer, you are first a reader. A reader of, of many different kinds of things, yes. And for you, and obviously you, you've written across genres, you read across genres, is there something in particular that really speaks to you? One author or one, one type of writing? Well, you know, I don't read across genre. I've never read, um, science fiction novel, I can't get into them. I've never read an Ian Fleming novel, any kind of espionage. I get bored immediately. But I live in this culture, and I know the tropes of all of these things because they're so insidiously placed in front of us. They're always there. And so when I 
subverted the, the form of a of the crime novel, maybe even in the trees, but in another novel of mine, Assumption, I didn't really appeal to detective fiction that I had read. I appealed to the expectations that the world has put in me for that kind of uh, story. That's so interesting. And I can't tell you how relieved I am to hear that you don't read science fiction. I loathe it, but I'm exposed to ridicule for, for having said so publicly. <laughs> well, I, I've just accepted that maybe I'm not smart enough to get it. But um, but a lot of people love it. Yeah, yeah. Now, just before we go, I, I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about Telephone. I'm told, I haven't read it, I'm told you wrote it in three different ways. Was that three different genres? No, there's some events that happen in the, in the versions are different, even at the sentence level. You can talk about, you can read one of them and a friend can read another one unknowingly and you can be talking about the same novel until you talk about either something tonal or specific events. And then the, um, the agreement about what's happened breaks down. I had long been taken with the question uh, given to writers that tells us what they, people say, what does it mean? As if we have some authority. Mm. And I've always said, it's the reader who has the authority about what a work means. So I decided to challenge the authority of the reader by having the reader read something different from another reader. That's absolutely fabulous. And just to talk about endings in the trees, of course, you end it at a particular moment, but whether things have a happy ending or a sad ending really just depends on where you leave the story, right? Well, no story ends. Uh, stories are abandoned and you can choose, yes, you can choose tonally to to leave it at a place that that, that and again, I can't say whether I've left in a place that offers some promise or offers some threat. Every reader will receive it differently. I thought that was so interesting. And the fact that absolutely, that particularly if one had been the subject of any kind of racial discrimination, one would take something completely different from it than somebody who had not. Certainly. I have lots of... Uh, I have younger students and people talk about microaggressions all the time. And, and I'm actually kind of taken with microaggressions. I think often those are our, the badges of, of passage that, are, that allow us to understand the world. That's something that a lot of us share. So I, I, I don't hate microaggressions. I view them as necessary. Percival Everett, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Well, thank you very much. The Trees is published by Grey Wolf Press. It's by Percival Everett. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hall and Emily Sands. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>